Hey guys, this is a bonus episode. I continued on my recording with Michael Vecchione talking about some of his other books. I separated this next clip out because it's Michael Vecchione telling a really interesting case he worked. Uh, uh, just an overview. There's a dentist out there that got in trouble with drugs and lost his dental license. So he went into the business of getting bones to sell to a company that then resold them to dentists who needed a little bit of bone to do a tooth implant. If you ever got a tooth implant, which are really expensive, I found out, they need to grab a little bone on there and they buy bone from a company. Well, this guy, <laughs> it's a crazy ass story. I'll tell you what, listen to this story. And, and I know it's not mob related, but you will be entertained and astounded that this all happened and how it went down. And just before it starts, I'm going to have a little clip from the set. Give that podcast a shot. I would suit up in my uniform and you're going out on patrol. What are we going to do tonight? Well, we're going to rob some drug dealers. And uh, I know how to do it really well. Listen to and follow The Set, an Odyssey Originals documentary podcast series available wherever you get your shows. I'm not a bad guy, man, but I loved being that dirty motherfucker. The end of Crooked Brooklyn, the last chapter, is about something which all of this stuff kind of boggles your mind. This story boggles my mind more than ever. A d assistant DA comes into me one morning and says, Mike, I have a woman and a detective in my office. And the woman is here because she just purchased a funeral home in Brooklyn and for, I forgot how much money. And when she was checking the books on the, on the, uh, the sale, you know, the funeral homes books, she realized that there were $300,000 worth of prepaid funerals that were not, was nowhere to be found. Mm. They were supposed to be in the bank accounts. They were nowhere to be found. I said, okay. And the detective is here because it's a white collar thing. They weren't that familiar with it. They want us to deal with it. I said, okay, Josh. What, what's the problem? He said, but there's something else. <laughs> While this new purchaser was visiting the nursing uh, the, the funeral home, she wandered upstairs to the second floor and she saw this room and she was curious and she walked in and she said that there were guys in there who were hovering over a body which was on a table and they were cutting, looked like they were cutting the body and doing so. She was curious. And she said, what are you doing? Because she went over to the body and she showed me, she, she took her hand and she kind of squeezed the, the body mm -hmm. and it was very, very squishy. And she said, well, what's going on? He told her, one of the guys told her that what we're doing is we're taking the bones and tissue out of the body. And, um, and we, our boss sent us here to do this. They, and what they were doing then, the squishiness, to fill it in so that it, the body would look decent when it was being laid out. They would throw garbage in there, their lunch, whatever they found, as mm. well as plastic pipe to simulate bones. Mm. So I said, Josh, forget about the $300,000 fraud. We'll deal <laughs> with that later. We got somebody involved in stealing body parts. Do we have, <laughs> did they have permission? Well, as it turns out, they didn't. And what, what this was, was a, very, very, very reputable dental surgeon who was, who was, he had published 
books, textbooks on uh, that were used in, in dental school. And he was a very, very rich guy who became rich because of his, his, his talent. But the problem was that during the course of his, his, his practice, he became addicted to Demerol. Mm. And, um, and, and it was a problem. And he had been suspended a couple of times from the practice until one day he was in the middle of dental surgery. And he was particularly involved and he knew about implant surgery. And he was in the middle of the surgery. And someone who was there, who was a witness for us, said he fell asleep with the instruments in his hand. He fell asleep in the middle of the surgery. Well, that was it. They, they took his license away from him, but he was making a ton of money, Gary. He was living really well in New Jersey, very, very uh, uh, expensive area of New Jersey. And he had now no way to make money because his business was over. But he knew about the need for bone, for mm-hmm. dental implants and for other things. So he decided that he'd go into the business of harvesting bones. And he would have, he had several contacts in funeral homes and he would ask them if when you get a cadaver, if you would allow me to speak to the family, I would like to get permission to be able to take bone out of the body and and pay them, of course, for it, et cetera, et cetera. Well, Gary, it didn't work out. Not one single family, of course, gave him permission to rip open their loved one's body to start stealing bones for this guy. So that didn't stop him. He just decided to do it illegally. So what he did was he came up and found a series of funeral directors all over the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, upstate New York, who he recruited to let him off, to tip him off when they had a cadaver so he could go to the funeral home and have the his people steal the bodies, steal the bone and tissue out of the, the bodies. And um, and then what he would do is take it back to his to his home, package it and send it to these processing companies that exist throughout the United States, legitimate processing companies, so that if a doctor needs a bone for for a dental implant, they go to the X, Y, Z processing company and buy the bone. Right. Mm -hmm. The problem was that his name was Michael Mastro Marino. Michael Mastro Marino was not very, um, very he, he didn't care. Uh, about how the person died. So he was he was taking bone and tissue out of people who were ranged from well into their 90s to people who had died of HIV, hepatitis, communicable diseases. And supposedly, he was selling this stuff to the processing companies with a vial of blood. The processing companies required the blood so that they could test it to make sure that these diseases didn't exist in the bone and tissue. Except what Master Marino did was he had a bag full of vials of clean blood from someone he knew, and he would send it down. And he would also send down with it a permission slip that was forged from the family Mm -hmm. and a death certificate, which was also forged. So if, let's say, Mr. Jones died of HIV, on the death certificate that that Master Marino would send down to the to the trusts companies, it would say automobile accident. It really came to a head when Alice the Cooks, Alice the Cook was one of the, you know, he's the guy that was the 
he's the the host of Masterpiece Theater on right. Is it, uh, okay, Alice the Cook was one of our victims, and and his body was given to funeral home. Mastro Marino was able to clean it all out, and um, and then it went to be uh, to be uh, um, cremated. Problem was, Alice the Cook was like ninety two years old, so nobody would buy a bone for. Uh, implant from someone who's that old. It's just brittle and and it just doesn't work. So when we found his death certificate, we went to his daughter who lived in New Jersey and said, did you give permission for this? She said, are you talk- what are you talking about? My father was cremated and we told her the whole story. You know what she said to us? She says, first of all, of course I didn't. Second of all, you know, when I spread my father's ashes where we were spreading it, it, I expected the ashes to contain, you know, little bits of bone, et cetera. Yeah. I didn't expect it to be like talcum powder. Yeah. Now I understand why. So this corrupt dentist had corrupted not only his people, but corrupted all of these funeral directors who were getting paid to tip him off to this stuff. And um, and he he went even further. We found out that he had gone to Russia and cut a deal with a Russian prison to get his hands on bodies of uh, prisoners who had died in the Russian prison, he would then transport them to Germany and do the same thing in Germany. Okay. He had cut a deal with an aged ho- a home for the aged in on the west side of Manhattan. Same thing. So corruption, maybe there's a lot of official corruption, and there is, but there's corruption everywhere. And to yeah. me, this was as this kind of corruption involving so many different people and and hurting so many different people. Gary, when we when the case was on, when we ultimately made the arrest, and the case was on in court, the courtroom was filled every time with the families mm-hmm. of the people who he had he had ravaged, whose bodies he had ravaged. And in Brooklyn alone, we found eleven hundred files for Brooklyn cases. We had to narrow it down to like 10 because, you know, I mean, we convict him 10 times. He's going to go to jail for the rest of his life. uh, 1,100 was not workable. And um, so we did. And uh, and he he finally takes a plea. And this is the end of the story. He takes a plea and gets 54 years in jail. Okay. He would have died in jail, which he did, except it was like two or three years after he went in. And he died of bone cancer. <laughs> so talk about karma. And <laughs> um, so so that all of those stories are in Crooked Brooklyn. And um, and it was and, and, and basically what we decided to do, we, myself and my writing partner, Jerry Schmetter at the time, was we were involved with this this eight or nine years of, of one corruption case after the other after the other. And Jerry and I went to lunch one day and we said, you know. Maybe we should do a book if we ever, if this ever, if if we ever retire from this place. And unfortunately, we retired a lot sooner than we wanted to because the DA lost the election. But uh, but that was the that's the genesis of of Crooked Brooklyn. So um, you know, it was a um, it was a time. That, there's also another case, but I won't get into it because we ultimately had to dismiss the case. But it involved another law enforcement official. We touch on it in Crooked Brooklyn. It was an FBI agent, and that's as far as I'll go. Okay. Um, but, um, but it, um, but it was a, um, it, it was a, it, we, when we first <laughs> had to pitch the book to what turned out to be St. Martin's press who ultimately published it, the name of it was Rackets Chief because it was about 
me and, mm-hmm. and my cases, right? When they looked at it and accepted the book, they said, do you mind if we look at this in terms of, you know, maybe changing the title, et cetera? I said, no, I don't, I don't care. Well, they came up with the idea of Crooked Brooklyn, and it was perfect. I mean, that was a, I think, sheer genius to come up with that that title because um, it was about Brooklyn and and corruption in Brooklyn for the most part. And um, so as it turns out, we locked up three Supreme Court judges, the head of the Democratic Party and the third ranking member of the New York State Assembly, another assemblyman, two detectives who were on a mob payroll, and this this demented demented, uh, dentist (laughs) who was stealing and ravaging body parts from from cadavers. So um, it was a rather interesting time. Uh, It was... uh, I will obviously never forget it. And, um, and, and, you know, and, and it, it was, um, I used to go home at the time I was married and I would tell my wife, you know, what was going on and what, and she would essentially shake her head and, and just say what, (laughs) you know, and, um, it it was unbelievable. And, you know, I, I, on the heels of crooked Brooklyn, just to, to stay with your topic for a moment, the corruption topic, we met a guy who was uh, the inspector general for the Veterans Administration here in, in the Northeast. And um, and he was he was given a tip that a doctor at a veterans hospital in in on Long Island was killing patients. And that led him off to an investigation in which he discovered and that he did. He, that led him to a nurse in Massachusetts who was killing patients in veterans hospitals. Mm. That led him off. That led him to another doctor who was killing patients in another hospital, and and it was and, and it led us to yet another who was essentially taking people in and putting them through testing because he was even though they were they were not candidates for this testing, so he could get paid by the testing company. So it was again another form of corruption and um and it was deadly forms of corruption actually for with this um with this this these these doctors and nurses and that book is called behind the murder curtain and um and it was um it was uh, again an eye-opening experience for uh, for me to to <laughs> to have you know you trust doctors when you go in for surgery and these people went in and um and were told that their loved ones who were on the verge of coming home wound up dying the night before because the doctor or the nurse or the other doctor wound up killing them because they were just just awful. And then they would, of course, and the corruption came in with, with when the hierarchies of the hospital found out what was going on, they would fire the doctor and they did fire this doctor several times, but didn't let the subsequent hospital know why the doctor was being fired. So it was a form of we can't allow, you know, this to get out because it would affect our business. Mm-hmm. We also can't have one of our colleagues find out because it would affect their business, etc. So so the corruption goes deep, deep. And 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 I have come up with this after all of these years and all of these investigations, Gary, I say that particularly politicians, not cops, but particularly politicians, every one of them is corrupt in some shape, manner, or form. Every one. And it could be, you know, a little small thing, 
But once you take that small step, the person who you did the favor for is now going to want a bigger favor and a bigger favor. And, you know, it sounds like a very cynical view, but I have the evidence to back it up in several <laughs> books that I've written. So. Yeah, I, I think by the very nature of the business itself uh, and politics to uh, to get elected, to get reelected, to uh, uh, maintain an office, it, it's it's always a, a matter of, you know, hey, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. It's just yep. you know, the very yep. nature of the business. And sometimes the scratching of the back is a lot more than just simply taking a small <laughs> back scratcher and doing it. It's a real <laughs> heavyweight scratch, you know? Yes. So. All right, Michael Bencioni. So uh, name off your books. You've got several, and I don't have a yes. list right here in front of me. Well, the one that the, the, the two most recent, the most recent is called Fallen Angel. That's my first novel. But it involves the cases that are in it and the tr crimes that are in it are all cases that were mine. The one before that is Homicide is My Business, Luigi the Zip, um, A Hitman's Quest for Honor. Before that was um, was the Behind the Murder Curtain, Crooked Brooklyn before that, and Friends of the Family was the first. And I'm about, and I just finished Fallen Angel book two, and I'm about to start, that will be out in September, and I'll be, I'm just about to start Fallen Angel book three. I got a three book deal on Fallen Angel. Okay. Um, so there, there are that many cases that I did, Gary, that I can fill three <laughs> books with the, with, with the, with the crimes, you know, wow. and, and let me just fill one other thing. And, and it's, and I have two short stories that are available on Amazon for 99 cents. Okay. One of them is called murder on the bridge. It's about a homicide involving a young woman that I, that I did early on in my career. And the other is, is about, is called hand of the killer. And, um, and, and it, uh, it's a very interesting story because it turns, the whole solving of the case turns on a baby's pacifier and a palm print left at the scene of this murder by the, by the bad guy. And, and I, I won't go into it anymore. I would suggest, you know, I would really kind of urge your, your viewers and readers if they would like to, uh, listeners, I'm sorry, Get them. They're only 99 cents, but I think that they'll enjoy the stories. Now, of course, the books are all available on Amazon and wherever books are sold. So, And thank Great. you very much for giving me the opportunity to to, 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 to for this little ad for my, my books. Really? Well, so. it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Michael. I, I really, it, it's enjoyable as heck for me, especially being a cop and being all around in that and just kind of hearing the thank prosecution you. side. and. <laughs> It's enjoyable for me as well. And um and and believe it or not, Gary, I got more stories. So if you ever have <laughs> okay. a show to fill, just give me a call and I'll be All happy right. to, to to come back on. All right. Michael Vecchioni, I really appreciate you coming on the show, Michael. Thank you, Gary. All right. Well, guys, that was great. Don't forget, you know, the set. I, I got a little link to it to the set. Be sure and give that podcast a shot. And if you got a problem with PTSD, you know, all you got to do is go to the website of the VA and they've got a hotline there. If you have a problem with drugs or alcohol, our friend, former Gambino member, Anthony Ruggiano, is a drug and alcohol counselor and has a hotline down in Florida. So you could have a, a real mob guy be your drug counselor, your alcohol counselor, if you want to get in recovery. And I like to ride motorcycles, so watch out for motorcycles when you're out there in your car. And I really appreciate you coming on the show, Michael. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much for having me, Gary.